Welcome to Transform Now, the podcast brought to you by robotic process automation pioneer, SSNC Blue Prism. Digital transformation has the potential to reshape the way companies service their customers, engage their employees, and manage their operations. Whether you're looking to develop strategies, tactics, or best practices to positively impact the future of work, or you're curious to see how other companies have successfully navigated their digital transformation programs, then this podcast is for you. We're here to help you transform now. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Marchuk. Welcome to the Transform Now podcast. Our guest on this episode is returning for a second discussion. Maureen Burns, who's a partner at Bain & Company, where she's a leader in Bain's customer strategy and marketing practice. Maureen advises clients on a range of issues, including overall corporate strategy, customer experience transformation, leveraging digital channels to drive customer experience and improvement, and implementing the Net Promoter System. Since our last discussion, Maureen has co-authored a book with Fred Reichold and Darcy Darnell on the Net Promoter System called Winning with Purpose. I am super excited to have Maureen back on with us to talk more about how organizations can transform their experiences with customers. Welcome, Maureen. Thank you so much, Michael. It's great to be back. I'm glad you're here. For some of the folks who may not have heard the first one, can you give us a little short intro on your background and also tell us how you came to write this book? Sure. So I've been at Bain almost 20 years and I've had the privilege of working with financial services firms for most of that and more recently across industries doing a lot of work on customer experience. And so a lot of folks don't realize that my partner, Fred Reichelt, actually invented the Net Promoter Score and the Net Promoter System. And so have worked closely with Fred over many years on those topics with clients. When he was writing the fifth book, Winning on Purpose, he asked me to join him as a co-author. That was several years ago now, and it's just been a tremendous journey and really fun. I noticed when I was looking through the book, I compared to some of the prior NPS books that seemed to be a little more focused on the business stuff. I noticed a lot more emotional language that was used to describe the customer relationships, the attitudes companies should have with their customers. I was hoping you could explain a little bit more about that and how that came to be. Sure. And you're probably referring to the use of the term customer love, which a funny story. When Fred asked me to join him on the book, he said, I want to write a book about customer love. And I looked at him as if he were crazy. And I said, Fred, I work with large banks and financial institutions most of the time. I cannot imagine walking into these boardrooms and starting to talk about love. And he said, just hear me out. And then he went on to describe the fact that what he'd observed is that loyalty leaders really and truly enrich the lives of their customers and their employees, the broader communities. And the definition of love is actually caring so much about someone else that you want to make their lives better or enrich their lives. And he thought was, why don't we think about bringing that concept to the business world? And I love the concept and I kind of intuitively knew it from working with companies that really had that as a part of their culture. But when we actually did the analysis and showed that NPS leaders, the companies that I would argue really do embrace customer love, outperform the market by more than three to one. It was then that I said, this is a concept. This concept of love and business is something I really want to be a part of and that we should be bringing to the business world more broadly. That's very interesting to me because as I was reading through it, even just looking at the chapter headings themselves, there are quite a few emotive words that were used. So I thought this was really very interesting. But we know NPS stands for Net Promoter Score. The book also describes how it can be shown as a net purpose score. Can you tell us a little bit more about this subtle but profound change in the wording? Yeah, it, it really is based on the fact that if you think about net promoter as each customer that you touch, are you enriching their life or are you making their life worse? And a promoter is someone 
you've enriched their life. A detractor is someone who you've denigrated their life in some way. And if you think about it, if you think the primary purpose of a company is enriching lives, then the net promoter score really does measure how well you're living up to that purpose, how many lives you've how many lives you've enriched and how many lives you've diminished. And that's really how we think about that wording change. And net promoter is pretty well known and established now. So I don't think we're going to go holistically and change it. But it was interesting as we wrote the book, reflecting on the fact that it could have been called net purpose score in many ways. So when you think about purpose, it's a little more in depth than simply describing a mission statement for a company, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I can't tell you how many companies I've walked in and they have a great purpose statement on the wall. But then when you actually look at how they behave and the decisions they make day to day, they're really not living their purpose. And I think that we have an example in the book of Enron. They had a beautiful purpose statement. We all know what happened there. What I've noticed is that companies that that really live their purpose have the nice statement and sometimes don't even have the nice statement, actually. But what they do is they have a sense of why they exist. And that sense is grounded in the way that they enrich individuals' lives, enrich the lives of their customers, employees, their communities. And then they actually translate that into specific actions and behaviors and ways that people at all levels of the organization participate in the purpose. And that to me is the key. Some of the companies that I've seen that have been that have invested this actually have run exercises where they have individual employees translate the company purpose to the role that they're in and how they serve that purpose. And I think that's how you go from a statement on a wall to a company that really lives its purpose every day is by translating it into the individuals that make I would think that would give the employees some ownership in that of that overall purpose that they'd feel like they know how to contribute to it. Absolutely. And it also really helps with employee engagement because one of the things we study a lot in trying to create great customer-centric companies is how do you create great customer-centric employees? And one of the things that we found is that from CEO to frontline, people are motivated by a sense of mission and purpose and that they are doing something that contributes to the greater good of society. And so when you can take a frontline role and help people translate that into what they do day to day, that has a huge difference in how employees feel about their role and their job and even just getting up and going to work in the morning. Such great insights there. Uh, one of the other things that really made me think was the way that you described customer satisfaction. People understand customer satisfaction and we think that we want to have satisfied customers, but are we really content to just satisfy the customer? Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, satisfied is an interesting word, right? Like it was just good enough, right? Or we talk about passives in the net promoter system. Those are the customers that are in the middle. They're like, I think of them as like the meh emoji. It's, it wasn't bad. It, it wasn't good. It was fine. And that's what satisfied to me is. Do you want to live your life creating meh emojis? Like that's not what I think greatness is. And so to me, the net promoter score and the idea of aspiring to create promoter customers that love you so much, they want to come back to you more and tell their friends. That to me is the goal that I want to be living. And I think most leaders want to be living. Yeah, I would say that same for sure. So we talked about this earlier about getting the average employee to understand the purpose behind their work. How do you get them to buy into this? I'm not just going to satisfy our customer. I want to go above and beyond. How do you bake that into the corporate culture? It's a great question. There's lots of different ways people do this. I think one of the most powerful tools we have is the net promoter system, which includes closed loop feedback and continuous improvement at the front line. And this works in human front lines. And I increasingly am seeing it work in what I call the digital front line, where we're using it for teams that are powering digital experiences. And the idea with that is you're getting voice of the customer. It's traditionally been survey based. I think increasingly we're using data to create predictive NPS scores and things like that. 
but you're getting data on how you're doing. And then I do think there is power in the voice of the customer itself and asking customers why they gave you scores and how, why they're doing certain things. And those teams and individuals getting that feedback is so powerful because it gives them a sense of the role that they play and what they can do individually to create better experiences. What we also do is we make sure that there's ways to escalate systematic issues or findings. And the best companies have ways to actually encourage um, employees at all levels to figure out ways to wow customers. So Chewy is a company that many have heard of, a great kind of retailer. They have a wow factory where they have a whole process and system for employees to try to elevate ideas for wows, and they have a budget for people to do wows. And so the companies that are really good at that are helping their each every individual employee figure out how to go above and beyond and encouraging it. And most of them that I think do it and really sustain it are using some kind of customer feedback system to help the employees really understand the impact they're having. And I think it's pretty clear from the different examples that were in the book, as well as describing the leader's responsibilities, then to encourage that, having Chewies to go through the process of funding this kind of wow factor because they know how important it is leading by example, right? Absolutely. And we, we say in the book, and I say it in every talk that I give, it all starts with leading with purpose, right? And it's that leadership that is so critical. But when I meet with companies, they're like, what's the one factor that you've seen that drives success here? And I said, it's committed CEO. Not to say that it always has to be the CEO, but man, if you have a committed CEO, your odds of success are way higher. But it is leadership that at every level, not just talks the talk because that's fairly easy. And I've seen lots of instances where leaders get up with bold ambitions around customer and talk about all the right things. But it is the day-to-day hard decisions where those leaders are willing to take risks and willing to make decisions in the long-term best interest of customers and employees that might in the short term come in conflict with financial performance. And what I've seen is that people that are able to break through have the conviction to believe that those short-term trade-offs will lead to the right financial outcomes over time. And we know from the data that they do. But in the moment, I understand it is challenging and hard to be leading a company with short-term financial pressures. But what I would say is the customer leaders are able to find a way to break through on enough of those decisions that they're on the right path. And I'm I'm not a, a zealot here. There are times when everyone has to make the tough decisions. But I'd say the customer leaders distinguish themselves by being on the side of long-term customer and long-term profitability versus always having to make that short-term trade-off. So how would an executive make the pitch back to the board or their investors that this is the right way of handling things? Yeah, so loyalty economics. So if a company does not understand loyalty economics, it's the first thing I do is say, you need to understand loyalty economics because this will open the aperture in a way that nothing else does. And we actually created a new metric to help with this earned growth in the book, which lets companies understand How much of my growth is actually coming from my existing customers buying more from me, staying longer, telling their friends versus going out for paid marketing? Because what we know is that what drives the financial performance of loyalty leaders, the outperformance, I should say, is that they have created earned growth based business models where far more of their growth is coming from existing customers doing more business with them. And it's a much more efficient model. And when you actually do the math on the value of a promoter versus a detractor customer, you see how much more valuable a promoter is. And so what I have found really breaks through in big companies is when you have those economics and you lay out the facts, people really can understand it in a new way that this really does make sense. The other thing I would add is what's really exciting about digital and automation, some of the work that you all do, is that we don't necessarily have a conflict now in many instances between better customer experience and lower cost. 
And so what's made my job a little easier, frankly, over the last few years is that oftentimes we're talking about improving customer experience and taking cost out at the same time. And so when you can do that, it's a win for everyone. Absolutely. When you're talking about loyalty economics, I had done a podcast with someone who had talked about the way they discuss customers of a certain sports league. They were talking about fan data, fan this, fan that. And I said, would it be neat if we all considered every single one of our customers a fan, like someone who would wait in line for a ticket, would be shouting for joy when they were participating in the purchase they made? Yeah. And we think that concept is going to be even more important. When you think about a world where we're moving more and more away from traditional marketing to referral-based marketing and influencer-based marketing, and frankly, brands are losing control of the narrative and it's increasingly in customers' hands. That concept that you described is so important. And I think the idea of these super promoters who are going to go out there and be loudspeakers about your brand is really valuable. And what you don't want to have is a bunch of super detractors, right? Because that could have the exact opposite impact. And I think the value of being a loyalty leader is only going to increase as the sort of narrative around a brand becomes increasingly by customers and not companies themselves. So true. So I want to shift gears for a second because one aspect that you brought up in several parts of the book was this concept of the golden rule. Maybe your mind jumps to the one with the gold rules or perhaps some other religious kind of viewpoint. Tell us more about the golden rule as it relates to the NPS system. Yeah, the golden rule could be, some people say treat others as you would want to be treated. We actually like to say treat others as you would want your friends or family to be treated because we think that we actually have a higher bar for that sometimes. And the idea is as a leader, where do you make decisions? When you're making decisions, are you making a decision that you would want your friends or family to be a part of? So for example, you know, Discover does this really well. They have made decisions about their business, one of which was they brought in all of the debt collection in-house because they didn't like the way that their debt collectors were treating their customers. And they said, I wouldn't want my friends or family to be treated that way. And so they decided to bring it in-house instead. And so it's that concept of the golden rule can really help power and frame some of these de- tough decisions that business leaders have to make. That's how we ended up with the NPS question, because it's, would you recommend to a friend or colleague? And we found that when we did all the analysis and all the different questions you could ask, that had the highest correlation with actual economic and behavioral outcomes. And when you think about it, like we talked to a CEO who said, I recommended a resort in the Caribbean to my friends. And the entire time they were on vacation, I was stressed out because I wanted to make sure they had a really good time. And so it's this concept I think is really powerful. Yeah, I agree. Wow. So thinking about the leaders who are hopefully adopting this golden rule, they tend to have a lot on their plates in terms of running their businesses. But as you've seen, the most successful business leaders tend to have a bunch of these core principles that they stand by. In the book, you described a number of them, Discoverer being one, Amazon being another. Can you describe some of the themes that you've noticed with companies who have these principles that are driving these very positive business cultures? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a couple of things. One is they lead with this purpose. So I talked about this before, but it is really critical. And it usually starts with most senior leadership. They have this conviction. The second is really they inspire their teams. So they find a way to make sure people often talk, talk to me about, do you have to start with customers or your employees? I'm like, you have to do both because you can't deliver great customer outcomes without really inspired employees. And then people say to me, we're moving away from frontline culture to digital. Everything's digital. It doesn't matter. Like you still need motivated and inspired employees to build your digital experiences and to get the feedback from customers and be constantly refreshed. The other is that they really strive to be remarkable across products and experiences. So I think that all of the work that's been done over the last many years on on customer experience 
in some ways, like actually made product secondary. And I think that we've lost a little sight of that. And you have to, if you don't have a great product, no, no one, no customer is going to love you anyway. So being remarkable across those two, um, rally promoters. So we were talking about this kind of super promoter concept, but they, the companies that are really good at this understand that they're spending lots of time, investment and energy in creating loyal customers. They should ask them to do stuff for them, right? Ask them to refer them, ask them for their business, for other things. So those are just a couple of the themes that we see across some of these leading companies. And I would say many of them embrace kind of core components of the net promoter system, which is measuring how you're doing, but also more importantly, frankly, creating the right learning loops and environment for that continuous improvement and learning. So in the book, you consolidate these themes into kind of a, a net promoter customer manifesto. Can you briefly touch on that? So it's a great question on the manifesto, and we've translated this for a lot of companies, but I'll just go through a couple. Of, I'll, I'll go through all seven, actually. So there's a couple of things. One is embracing the unbeatable purpose. And so this is the idea that if we believe the primary purpose of a company is to enrich lives, leaders have to clarify that. And then, as I was talking about earlier, help employees translate what that means for their individual role. The second is lead with love. And so what does that mean? It means that you're leading with the concept of really enriching lives. And it starts with your employees. So how do you inspire people and motivate them and help them lead their best life? And that sounds it sounds, um, you know, a little wishy-washy, but in reality, the best leaders do that. They help people reach their full potential. And part of that is inspiring them to deliver amazing experiences for customers. A very related to lead with love is inspiring teams. So they feel teams feel fully supported on their missions. And this is both in, we say, thought, word, and deed, like how you treat your teams, but also in large companies, it's the talent infrastructure you put around it. So do you have the right opportunities for teams to have continuous learning and improvement? Are your rewards and recognition reflecting the values that you're trying to teach and embody? All of these things are really important in inspiring teams. Four is unleashing, we call it NPS caliber playback flows. And what does that mean? It means that you're asking customers how you're doing. You're looking at data to find out how you're doing. But you're not just reporting that, that news. You're actually, what I like to think of is it, you're wiring the voice of the customer through the organization so that every employee knows how they're doing in their role in delivering great customer experience. And you're, I like to think of it as creating this kind of living, breathing, learning entity in a company where you have the voice of the customer at your fingertips and you can really understand how you're doing. And I think it's even more important as we see more experiences shift to digital because you have employees that may never lay eyes on a customer, but they really need to understand the impact they have. And so getting that voice of the customer embedded is really important. The fifth is nurturing relentless learning. And so we've got the feedback, but how do we make sure we learn from it? And how do we make sure that we're continuously improving and learning and innovating? And we really feel strongly about putting in place huddles and group learning activities and things like that where employees are talking about the feedback. We encourage learning at the board level. There's many corporate boards where I think that they underestimate the impact of great customer experience. And so how do you get your board up to speed? How do you make sure that all of your leaders understand the value? And then finally, how do you have a safe place for your teams to be able to really express what's getting in the way of them doing a great job for customers and what's getting in the way of them having a great work experience. The companies that are best at this give employees a way to do that. The sixth is quantifying earned growth economics. So I talked about this earlier, but it's this idea of how much of my growth is coming from my customers versus am I buying through paid marketing? And NPS leaders are, are quickly adopting this concept and figuring out how much of their growth is earned. What's so great about going through the exercise 
is not only do you get a sense of that metric, but you really can decompose it and understand why are customers joining? Where are they coming from? Why are they promoting you? What, how do you get more of those types of customers? And it really, I think, helps to create a much more holistic growth strategy. And then finally, we talk in the book a lot about being humble. And in the manifesto, we say redefine the remarkable, right? So never rest on your laurels. The greatest companies are always looking around corners and trying to figure out how to innovate in the interest of customers. And I would argue that loyalty leaders have an innate advantage because they're so close to their customers. They actually can anticipate and understand their needs ahead of others. And so I think that they naturally have an innovation advantage. But if you get too comfortable, that innovation advantage can quickly can qu quickly dissipate. So I think it's important to really keep a strong focus on that. Well, I can understand how this all applies in the B2C marketplace where our end consumers are people like you and I. What happens within the B2B environments where we're selling to businesses? You know, I think all of it, most of it is still very relevant. And I have actually been, I don't want to say surprised, but excited by how much interest we've had from B2B companies over the last year. So I've had the privilege of giving talks at some very large kind of B2B companies this year. And it's been really, it's been really fun because if you think about it, look, we're all business people, right? And so at the heart of it, most companies want to be loyalty leaders because they believe it's going to lead to better financial outcomes too. It's the right thing to do. And it also leads to better financial outcomes. The power of earned growth and loyalty driven business models is even more so in B2B. If you think about it, you're oftentimes developing much deeper, longer client relationships and have probably more of an ability to know clients and ask for referrals and things like that. And so we found that it's quite powerful in B2B. The one difference, not even a difference, but it works best when it's embraced by the sales organization and it's embedded in typical kind of account planning and account, account processes. And it does cause a little tension in really sales-driven cultures because there are sometimes tensions between I need to get the next product in the door versus I need to get know what's right for the customer. And I've actually seen some really impressive results when, com when B2B companies really understand long-term loyalty economics and are able to take some pressure off the sales teams to think about the long-term client relationship versus the next quarter. Look, we're all running businesses and I understand there's always a tension there, but I think it's powerful when you can actually empower some of your sales teams to take a little bit of a longer-term view because you believe it's economically the right thing too. I think about it, I think a lot of B2B companies create like su customer success groups. And oftentimes it's because customers got sold something that they didn't really know how to fully take advantage of. And then this customer success group has to spend a heck of a lot of time to, what if we sold the right product to the client at the right time? And then the customer success group was about like helping expand that relationship over time. And that's where I think people are evolving, but it's obviously a journey. <laughs> I agree. I agree. So you've written this book and now I want to ask you a more personal question. If I were to look on your nightstand and find a book there, what would that book be? I have a couple that I'm actually reading right now. The one that's next to me, because I'm trying to bring it home, is actually uh, was a gift, but it was hard choices. Hillary Clinton. So I'm gonna I'm gonna tackle that one. Um, I also have a book on AI, which the name is escaping me right now. That I've been working my way through. I firmly believe that that customer experience will be increasingly tied to machine learning, artificial intelligence. And so I am trying to get as smart as I can on these topics, despite the fact that I wasn't trained in them. And I also believe that we have this enormous opportunity, but risk that's facing business, which is that we can build these experiences solely based on kind of models and optimization of short-term ROI, or we can try to build these experiences with love, if you'll let me be that bold, to try to create a digital front line that replicates the empathy 
and enlightenment and passion even, if, you, if we could get be, again, be so ambitious as a human frontline. And so I, I'm, as I work with large companies, I'm trying to bring that point of view and make sure as we're starting to do this, trend, go on what I think is going to be one of the greatest transformations of our time. We do it in a way that enriches lives rather than diminishes them. That's an excellent way of putting it. And I've seen that with our teams where we, we obviously sell digital workers, robots, that augments human activities at our clients. But we feel the same way. This is about the human, not necessarily about the digital workers. It's about the work that the digital workers are doing to provide that support or care for the customers. So I don't know if we're going to go down the love your robot thing, but. I think you had, we, you had read my brief, the bots love your customers. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I think that we should, I think we should aim to create loving bots. There we go. Well, Maureen, I really appreciate you joining me today and going through this again. I'll put a link to the book below in the show notes, as well as the first podcast that we had done on Will the Bots Love Your Customers? Because I think uh, that was also a very insightful way of looking at things. So again, thank you for joining us. And I really appreciate your insights today. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to Transform Now. For more insightful discussions on digital transformation and more, check out our podcast channel where you'll find all of our previous episodes. And to make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player. And if you like what you've heard, please leave us a review. For more information about digital transformation and the future of work, check out blueprism.com to learn how SSNC Blueprism's digital workforce is enabling enterprise transformation now.